sloppy spoilers with your host, DT2. Hello and welcome to Sloppy Spoilers. I'm your host, DT2 Comics Chat. You know me on Twitter at DT2 Comics Chat. My real name is David Taylor II. And we're here to talk about The Mandalorian Season 2, Episodes 5 and 6, both very pivotal episodes. I would like to welcome all my co-hosts. Welcome to David, Nemesis Howard. How are you doing? And where can we find you on Twitter? Hey, everyone. Uh, glad to be here. You can find me on Twitter at NemesisFC2. And you can also find my work over at ASAP Comics UK and at DWHoward.com, a new site that's launching. Awesome. Awesome. Welcome to Steve Shade Wing Sellers. How you doing, Steve? And where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, doing all right. Uh, just a simple man making his way through the galaxy. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Shade Wing. Uh, I also do uh, stuff for Omen Comics uh, as well. So, you know, you can find me there. And welcome to Jeff, Dr. Fate Bracey. How you doing, Jeff? And where can we find you on Twitter? I am fantastic, and as always, you can find me on Twitter at Bracey452. That's at Bracey452, B-R-A-C-E-Y. Excellent, excellent. We're going to jump right in. First episode, we're going to review The Mandalorian Season 2, Episode 5, and that episode is entitled The Jedi, which is a bit of an understatement. So I'm going to give my initial thoughts, then I'm going to throw it over to my uh, co-host. Um, there's so many things going on in this episode. Right off the bat, I want to say it's one of the few episodes that I actually wanted to watch again and again. Uh, there's so much happening in it from every angle. The writing, the acting, the directing, the lighting. The action sequences, the CGI, the the plot development, uh, it's just, it's incredible. So off, off the kind of in general comment section, <clears throat> this is one of, Ahsoka Tano in this episode is one of the best screen-to-screen -screen translations I've ever seen. Ahsoka, just like uh, Harley Quinn, uh, continues to evolve through different mediums. And while she definitely has some differences here from, from the way we meet her in the Clone Wars, uh, she's more mature, she's more calm, she's incredibly seductive and flirting big time with Mando. But just in terms of how Rosario Dawson translates her, it's incredible. And the look and so we're going to talk about all that in detail. So in terms of my general comments about the episode, to finish that up, um, the plot makes sense. I only have a small, small, tiny few nitpicks, and we'll get to that when we get to the nitpick section. <laughs> um, the action was incredible. Um, it felt like it was going to dip in the middle. It felt like there was a little bit of the break in the energy when we get to the scenes where we learn more about Grogu, but they make up for it with the information that we get there. And it's one of the episodes where I can just put it on repeat 
and just enjoy every layer, every level of it. And that's because uh, Dave Filoni, his handiwork, his signature trademark uh, uh, creative touch is all over this, just like it was all over Clone Wars. So uh, it's another testament to how, and I've said it on Twitter a lot lately, you want people in charge of your intellectual property that love the property and love the characters and love the fans. Because when you get that, it translates into the product in such a tangible, unmistakable way. And that's what this episode represents in a nutshell. And also the last thing I'll say before I turn it over is, if you wanted a live action version of Clone Wars, this is about the close you're going to get all things told. All things rolled together. Uh, if you want a Clone Wars to turn, you know, again, with live action actors, this is what it would look like. This is about the best you're going to get. And on top of all that, there's an incredible reveal at the end that has to do with another character that's been ported in from what was the pre-Disney extended universe canon, which we were told was trashed, wasn't real, didn't count, uh, until it does. <laughs> which is what happens every time. And, and that dips in here too. So, so I would really say that the different strands of Star Wars, the different threads of Star Wars and all these different incarnations all come together in one place in one time in this episode. That's literally how powerful it was. Okay, let me hear you guys' thoughts. Just give me some general Thoughts over the episode, then we'll dive into detail. Start with Bracey. All right. There's a, wow, this, uh, my favorite episode, like starting off the get-go, I love the whole episode with the crate Dragon. Uh, and the second episode was like, yeah, it was okay. And then it got a little better with the next couple. But like this episode was like just, <laughs> this was so awesome. Like, so much justice done to uh, to Ahsoka with uh, with Rosario, and like you said, uh, the filming, the cinematography, the whole mood set up on the thing, the fact that uh, Ahsoka's just basically she's she's not even running around like a Jedi, she's running around like a space ninja, and I loved it. Her uh, her her style of uh, of battling the the evils in the universe is very different than what you get from the Jedi Order, which makes a lot of sense since she had to divest herself from that. And uh, her and Mando's uh, interactions were great, and uh, I just I just really really love this episode. This was so good, and like you said, even when it dipped in a little bit, while it dipped, you still got some really pertinent information. So for me, it's almost a flawless episode. Absolutely. Go ahead, Steve. General thoughts. Yeah, I would say that this is maybe my second favorite episode of this season, uh, second only to the finale, uh, which we will talk about eventually. Um, I will say that um, I, I did a, review, uh, a text review uh, for uh, Comics Crusaders a while back, so if you want really detailed thoughts, I would look there. But um, as far as uh, my, my general thoughts with it, um, I thought it was really good. I thought that um, it managed to balance... Um, being an Ahsoka episode with being an episode of Mando. Because when you have a major guest star like Ahsoka Tano, and when it's brought to life as well as it is by Rosario Dawson, you know, you always are kind of a little bit worried that, are, is she going to steal uh, the thunder of uh, Din Djarin and distract from his story? It doesn't. 
Like it still feels like an episode of Mando. It still feels like a Western. Um, it has that. But at the same time, you feel like, OK, we get to see where Ahsoka has been um, after all this time with the Clone Wars. Uh, you get to see um, mention of a particular major villain that appeared in Rebels, uh, which is really nice. Um, and what happened to him? Because uh, that's a really, really great character. And, and I knew that he wasn't dead uh, even after that finale uh, where he basically disappeared. Um, all of that. So you get answers about that. And and you get a really great um, battle at the end um, in, a, in the style of like Lady Snowblood or Kill Bill. I mean, everything just comes together beautifully. It feels like, yeah, it's, you, you, it's a Jedi story. But it's also a uh, Mando uh, Western type story like we've seen, and they blend together so well. And all of that has to do with how well Dave Filoni knows the lore, uh, knows his own story, knows how to fit everything together. Um, and, and his just the understanding of the code and, you know, pacing and balancing all these elements that he brought in. And it just comes together just really, really beautifully. Uh, there really aren't very many uh, problems with it at all, really. I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of a pacing issue in the middle. Um, but, you know, we get so much out of it, it doesn't matter, as you guys have said. Um, yeah, I would say this is definitely one of the better uh, episodes of the season and maybe of the show in general. Absolutely. We'll talk about the little nitpicks we have in the nitpick section, but they're very little, which is rare, but they are minuscule. Go ahead, Nemesis. Yeah, you know, the whole time Steve was talking, I was just smiling at the things he was bringing up, uh, especially from Rebels and uh, with uh, the person that I'm not going to name yet. But the fact that the that we know that he is still alive also leads to the possibility that we could see Ezra Bridger from Rebels as well, which makes me smile. Uh, my thoughts, when I first heard that they were going to bring Ahsoka to live action, I had serious doubts. When I heard that it was going to be Rosario Dawson, uh, I like her very much as an actress, but I wasn't sure how that would translate. I, I was reserving my opinion, and I was absolutely wrong to have any doubt. She is Ahsoka Tano, and it was beautiful to see. It was absolutely wonderful, and I loved it. I did not know how that character could translate to live action, and they did it. I would say flawlessly, in my opinion. Um, the last thing I'm just going to touch on was uh, overall thoughts. The aesthetics of this episode were incredible. Um, the fact, you know, I've seen a lot of people compare this to Japanese samurai movies, and I didn't see that so much except in Ahsoka. Ahsoka is definitely a Ronin character now, and I love to see that. The fact that she has left an order in the Jedi and become a masterless Jedi, basically, a masterless samurai, a ronin who travels the galaxy is just incredible and really sets up her live action series perfectly. But the rest of the aesthetic was very Chinese, very uh, high fantasy Wing Chun movies. And I love to see that as well. And the blending of those two things, I think, is the essence of Star Wars, where so often the best Star Wars takes elements from cinema or stories like the Western stuff and blends it with something else. It comes up with something new. And that's what this episode did as well. King in on some of those words. The translation was flawless. After agree. Um, but the samurai style fighting uh, combined with a Western style because you even hear Mando's music when he faces off later on in the episode. But also mm -hmm. what Nemesis just said, 
what this episode does, kind of whether you, you realize it or not, that's why you have to look at it several times. It adds even more dimensions and layers to the Force, to the Jedi and the Sith, to the fact that you have a choice and what you can do with your life if you're a Force-sensitive. Because she really was a Jedi ninja. She really was. Her style wasn't anything like Anakin's or Obi-Wan's or Mace's or anybody that we've seen fight on screen. That's not how she fought at all. She stole up on you, snuck up behind you, ignited her lightsabers, and you're over. And you didn't see her coming. You didn't hear her coming. That is definitely ninja style. And I also want to say, because we're going to get into the subtleties of that conversation about the child, but I also want to say the idea of her being a ronin um, introduces or it can lead us to a path of something called Grey Jedi. And those of you that are familiar with Star Wars, or you know what I'm talking about. But the idea, again, see, this is the difference between science force and magic force. If it's just science force, it's all about the amount of midichlorians that you have in your bloodstream, and that's it. But if it's magic or faith-based, then it has everything to do with your choices and your character. As far as I'm concerned, like I said last pod, that's still a more interesting approach. Still much more interesting and much more layered. And again, the layers get, get even more deep here. Let's get into some specifics. <clears throat> and one thing I wanted to point out as we go into, you know, just going through the scenes, if you never thought about it, I'm speaking to our audience because I know uh, I know all three of, of uh, my guest hosts have thought about it. But if you've never thought about it, Star Wars rises and falls on its sound design. If you don't know anything about making movies or professional video or audio, um, there's many, many different tracks that go into a movie. For example, the score is not the soundtrack. If you buy a CD of different songs that they might feature with the movie, that's not the same as the orchestral score that's accenting the scenes. That's not the same as the spoken dialogue, which most of the time they have to loop. The actors have to go back and say the lines again because they can't record the audio in the same space when they're shooting the video many times. But then there's the sound design. And the sound design is how your doors open, what sound they make, your windows, your ships, all that different kind of stuff. Star Wars rises and falls on sound design. Star Wars would not be Star Wars without the way R2 sounds, the way Chewie sounds, the way the Falcon sounds, the way Darth Vader sounds, all that sound design. The reason I bring that up is because you can hear the subtle difference in the way Ahsoka's lightsabers light up. Many lightsabers, especially going back to the original trilogy, they kind of rolled out of their hilt, but her lightsabers pop out, and it's a more aggressive sound when you hear it. So it's not a pew, it's a pew. And that makes a huge difference, even though that seems like a little thing. And that adds to her intimidation factor. That adds to her ninja moves. That adds to why they're afraid of her. Because even when our lightsabers ignite, you know you're in trouble. It's not the same. Go back and watch the first movie and watch when Vader and Obi-Wan face off in the hallway. 
and watch how their lightsabers just kind of roll out. It's very, very different. And little things like that make a huge difference psychologically if you never thought about it. <clears throat> so keying in on that, we're going to look at the opening sequence, which for a show entitled The Mandalorian doesn't feature The Mandalorian. <laughs> uh, it features Ahsoka, and she's obviously the title character in Meeting the Jedi. And uh, <clears throat> it's such an incredible opening sequence because it shows who she is. It shows where she is. It shows what she can do. And uh, even in the dark mist, even though sometimes you only see her outline, sometimes you don't see her until she lights up her sabers, she turns them on and off a lot. Again, excuse me, speaking to a ninja style, because most of the other Jedi that we've met so far, once they ignite their sabers, they fight until they're done. That's not what Ahsoka does. She turns them on, does her thing shuts them back off and disappears back into the mist. And so she's fighting uh, a lady named Morgan Elsbeth, and find out more about her later. But Ahsoka basically wants some information, and she's got to fight through uh, Morgan's soldiers and guards to get that information. And they don't really have a chance against her, but it's kind of like if they keep going, you know, it might be a stalemate, or she could conceivably lose, but it would take a long time. So also Elspeth has uh, prisoners and she will execute those prisoners. And even though Ahsoka Tano is, Ahsoka Tano is definitely a Ronin now, she doesn't want to have innocent blood shed because of her. So it's a wonderful setup. You, you see kind of like you tie into emotionally the stakes right away. And of course the incredible Michael Bean is the right-hand man of Elspeth. He's uh, named Lang in this episode. Michael Bean is sci-fi royalty. I don't know if he knows that he is, but we know that he is. Because Michael Bean, if, for those of you who are listening, if you don't know who that is, he played Kyle Reese in the original Terminator movie and in the deleted scenes of T2. And he also played Hicks in Aliens, two Cameron movies that pretty much changed the world. So it's always good to see him. So that's a lot in the opening sequence, but I definitely want to hear you guys' uh, thoughts about that. So we're going to start with Nemesis. What do you think about that opening? Yeah, I love the opening. Um, one of the things that I really appreciated, I love when you were talking about the way her lightsabers work and the fact that she turned her lightsabers off uh, when she was not using them. is something she did a lot during Clone Wars when she was known as Snips. Um, I think she did it a lot back then because... Uh, she was a child, she was a Padawan, she was small, uh, she fought in a certain style, but it's interesting that Filoni and Favreau know this, they've done their research and have brought this forward and evolved her fighting style now that she's a woman from what she had when she was a child, when she was a Padawan stunning under Anakin, and I think it's fascinating and just immerses you even more into the character. Um, I love that you mentioned uh, Michael Bean. Uh, Hicks, I love that character. He got done wrong. I'm just going to put that out there right now. Um, but the whole fight really upped the stakes. You could feel that, going back to something you had said, you could feel the fear and the, the mysticism and the mythology that was built up around the Jedi, 
even when they aren't Jedi, because the normal person doesn't care or know what about the intricacies of who's a Jedi, who's not in the Jedi Order. As far as they're concerned, if you have Force powers and you're wielding a lightsaber, you're a Jedi. And so seeing her do that, you can understand uh, prior episodes and episodes that come after this, the fear and the 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 mythology that has built up around these people that are collectively known as Jedi, even if they're not technically Jedi. And that is brings back that magical nature of Jedi, which is what you were talking about before before. And and I'm coming around to your way of thinking. I do think that is the better way going forward to present Jedi. Well, what we see in Ahsoka is pretty much the best live-action Jedi sequences we've seen since Rogue One and Vader in that hallway, because we never get to see them like this in live-action for continued battles. We see clips and cuts away in the Clone Wars, the Attack of the Clones, the live-action stuff, um, besides the major fight in Empire and... um, also, what this reminded me of, uh, I forget the name of the YouTuber. You remember that uh, updated fight scene between Vader and Obi-Wan that he redid? Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? Yeah. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It reminded me of that. It reminded me of how we have always wanted to see the Jedi behave. And it also is a stark reminder, once again, if you're not psychologically thinking about it, that we haven't seen fully realized Jedi that much. We haven't seen full Jedi in action like we wanted to. We see it in uh, Revenge of the Sith, but Anakin and Obi-Wan are so evenly matched. It's why they fight so long. It's because yep. neither one of them can get the advantage on the other, and the only reason Anakin loses is because he does something stupid, not because Obi-Wan outfought him. I would say and that the so fight between... I was just going to add, I'd say the fight between Darth Maul and Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan is at the same level, I, for me personally, anyway. I think so for Maul. Uh, Obi-Wan's not quite everything he's going to be there, and Qui-Gon does something kind of stupid. So it, <laughs> it didn't feel... I mean, no, the action's there, definitely. But, you know, in Darth Maul, the way he dies is kind of stupid, too. Right. So there wasn't really any stupid... in one scenes and there wasn't any stupid in these scenes either <clears throat> that's what i mean you know people that are fighting they know how to fight they don't lose because of ridiculous choices in the middle of the fight because darth maul had obi-wan beat no way he should have lost See okay i, I mean? hear you mm-hmm. so but but you know again it's psychological you really have to be deep into the lore to figure uh it out in terms of comparing all the outings but if you're just watching as a casual uh, watcher, you can still see that this is why the Jedi have such a, 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 a mythical rep built around them, because this is what they can do when they're fully trained, when they're not afraid, when they know who they are, when they've mastered their weapons, you know, that whole thing. Uh, anyway, go ahead, Steve, because we can talk about this forever. Go ahead, Steve. And also, I agree with your point about Alien 3. I could do a whole pod about that. You guys know how I feel about Alien 3 because I only talk about it every day. Go ahead, Steve. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm with you guys on that one too. Like they absolutely wasted Hicks and 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 uh, Bishop and and Newt in that, but we're, that's a whole nother pod. Um, in terms of this episode, um, I really kind of and I forgot to mention this previously, but I, I'll bring it up here because I think it's important. Um, I really kind of got the sense that this episode was to some extent a backdoor pilot. Um, for an Ahsoka show, and we found out later that they were actually doing one, so I think that was the intent here. Um, and we kind of see that with the way that they establish Ahsoka in, in this. You know, they show her off um, off from the gate being a complete badass. You know, they show her, you know, doing these uh, ninja moves. She's very much in the Kunoichi, you know, style. And um, one thing that I think is interesting about Ahsoka, in addition to what you guys mentioned, is that sometimes Ahsoka does not necessarily use her lightsabers uh, the way that a conventional Jedi would, which is to say, like, she uses double uh, grip, um, that she does it with a forward grip, um, you know, the way that Anakin does or that Obi-Wan does, you know, the kind that you would expect a samurai to. No, she does it what you sometimes see in ninja movies, what you see in things like Zatoichi, uh, the blind swordsman, which is she sometimes will fight in a reverse grip on the on the. Uh, on the lightsaber, which is a much more aggressive style. We see this particularly in the last fight at the end, but I think there was some in the beginning. Um, so you kind of see that, you know, Ahsoka is a Jedi, but not a typical Jedi, which is really, really interesting. And it matches up with all of these other things. So when you say that the sound design makes a big difference, you know, because she sounds more aggressive. Well, yeah, she is more aggressive. That's that's what makes her different than the others, because she was trained by Anakin, who became Vader. Uh, so she has a little bit of that, um, you know, aggressive style, um, even though it's controlled and not gone to the, as far to the dark side. So you kind of see all these elements there. So you see what it establishes uh, Ahsoka as a Jedi. But at the same time, I find it interesting that she has come to terms with being called a Jedi um, since um, the Battle of Lothal uh, in Rebels, uh, which is to say she seems to have come to terms uh, with her place uh, as a member of the Jedi Order, you know, uh, maybe in part because the old Jedi Order is gone and now there's a new one in its place uh, that Luke is founding at this point. Uh, so maybe she's kind of made her peace with that. And so she doesn't mind like having the appellation of Jedi. Um, she did have a standing offer from Yoda to come back to the Order at any time. Uh, so, you know, we, we get to see like how she's evolved as well. Um, and, and I have to say Rosario Dawson is just wonderful. Um, she was absolutely perfect casting. Like even when I, I started seeing people fan casting her on Twitter, I was like, yeah, that really kind of worked. And then uh, we start seeing her here and she's great. Um, just just all the, the fight scene is just really well done. You know, and we get to see who she is without a single line of dialogue, really. Um, and that that's really well done. Uh, one last point that I'm going to bring up um, is uh, the actress who plays uh, Morgan Elsbeth is Diana Lee Inosanto. And uh, I didn't know who she was at first, and then I found out later. She is oh, Bruce Lee's goddaughter. She's Bruce Lee's goddaughter. Her father yeah. was the was the, uh, Dan Inosanto, who was a long time training partner of Bruce Lee. And um, you know, so she was his goddaughter the whole time. I think Inosanto, the the father, was in Game of Death and a couple of other things. So Damn, you know, she I was going to drop that bomb. <laughs> Sorry about that, but you know, but she, but the G, the 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 Kundo is very strong with Elspeth, and when you know who she is, um, it adds even more weight to this fight because Ahsoka Tano is up against someone who is worthy of her in terms of uh, a martial arts skill, and and we get to see that later. Uh, I will let uh, Jeff continue that and see the. 
How yeah, am I supposed to continue? Yeah, uh, you stole my thunder. <laughs> yeah, we were definitely going to bring that out. Um, also, I want to throw something in here. And this is to longtime Star Wars fans as well as new viewers. Uh, something I want you to consider. This episode, The Mandalorian in general, does a much better job of helping you understand the impact of Anakin's fall to the dark side. What, what, what may have been understated, because we were so busy tripping on the CGI and Jar Jar Binks and the prequels, what may not be clear is the moral failure because Anakin turning to the dark side changed the Jedi forever. And the impact of that choice of him becoming Darth Vader changed the galaxy because it, it pretty much broke the Jedi in terms of their morale. They knew such a thing could happen. They'd seen such a thing happen before, but they hadn't seen it happen on that scale with someone at that level of power, with someone with that level of potential to become the most ruthless force user killer underneath the emperor himself, literally. And it kind of broke the Jedi and it kind of put a pall on the galaxy itself. That, that shroud, that cloud of Anakin turning into Vader still exists. It still resonates in the heart of everybody that was a Jedi, that would ever think about being a Jedi, that knew the Jedi. And I think that has been underplayed. Just how big of a deal that was when Anakin turned into Vader. And it's mentioned specifically here. We'll get to that in a minute. But I just want to point that out because sometimes we, we focus on so many other things except really understanding that meant morally and what the social impact, what the social impact, because now, now this, this may be a, a funky comparison, but if you ever gotten into an altercation with any type of authority figures before you might have viewed them a certain way. And then maybe if you got into any problems with them, you might view them differently, especially if something unjust happened. So that's not an exact analogy, but that's the idea about the Jedi. Before they're guardians of good, peace, justice, that kind of thing, you know, Pat may trust them implicitly, although lightsaber colors are, you know, bright primary colors or, you know, just everything about them was kind of light-sided and obvious until Anakin Skywalker and the whole universe is still a little bit darker because of that. And uh, so I can't stress that enough. And uh, we'll get into when she mentions him, well, she doesn't mention him by name, but she mentions, mentions Anakin by experience. We'll talk about that in a minute. Go ahead, Bracey. All right. So, yeah, like you said, uh, when we get into that, Ahsoka says something very important, which also reveals something about her character. She'll say, I've seen, you know, what poor training can do to the best of us. Because she considered Anakin, her former master, to be the best of the Jedi that she knew. Which, like you said, we'll get into. That's a very important revelation that she has. But as for the opening scene here, uh, we've already established that uh, Ahsoka has a very different fighting style. It's, it's very, uh, you know, uh, uh, ninja the sort of fighting style that you see in the uh, the old Chumbara, those samurai films. What's interesting about the reverse grip is it's actually considered a defensive grip. Uh, when I was taking Kuxul 1, 
it's it's very good. It's it your sword acts like a shield uh, more than a sword, which is used to parry. And here you actively kind of block. So using your sword in that in that fashion means you have to get a lot closer. And we know Ahsoka is very nimble, and uh, in a way that it fits that uh, what her aggressive fighting style. Because if she she's already small, and if she gets inside somebody's guard, she really puts them on the back foot by using that particular style. But that's traditionally considered the uh, the reverse hand grip is considered a defensive measure when you're uh, sword fighting. Is particularly one of the reasons the uh, the blind swordsman Zatoichi used it. Uh, for a, a little bit of context as far as that goes, as far as a uh, Samurai and Ninja film. Uh, this is uh, pretty brilliant. As we've mentioned, Ahsoka doesn't fight like uh, hardly anybody we've ever seen in the uh, Star Wars universe. The only guy that comes close is either Galen Merrick or Starkiller clone from the Force Unleashed series, who also likes to use uh, dual lightsabers, often the reverse grip. Also a very aggressive character. So it was kind of nice to see them uh, nod back to this, like you guys mentioned, uh, Filoni and Favreau really know their stuff when it comes to this. Love the fact that she, uh, again, she does like uh, so many other people don't, as we'll see later on in the in the season finale with a, a certain character. Um, people like, uh, you know, Obi-Wan, he's all about uh, the deflection. He's got the very defensive Sirisu style. Uh, people like Vader are just juggernauts who just wade through everything without without a care. But uh, Ahsoka is like that that sneaky fighter, that ninja fighter. I loved I loved so much the fact that she was cutting off the blades left and right, and then like springing them on the enemies at the uh, at the most opportune moment. But it also pointed out something to me. Yes, I love the way that it built up the sort of fear and mythos in her, and she might have even been playing into the fact that you know the uh, the Empire would have been talking all kinds of mad trash about the Jedi. They were like secret assassins, you know, they were secretly running the galaxy and they had to be wiped out. So I think she's playing on that in her own way, as well as going into her own fighting style. But as we'll see, like when we get to the finale, we see what happens when you have somebody of a different caliber, uh, not taking anything away from Ahsoka. But it seems that she needs her sneaky fighting style. Um, she, uh, even though she's fighting these guys out here in this uh, this uh, foggy territory. It's like you said earlier, detail. She might actually lose or end up in a stalemate. There is that possibility. Unlike if somebody like a, a Vader waited in there, you know, he is just going to wreck everything. So I like that aspect as well. That later on, that she will have to team up with Man uh, Mando to uh, achieve the uh, the goal, the ultimate goal of taking this fortress. So there's a lot of really good stuff in there. I like the fact that she's just not made like some sort of a OP superstar right away. This really feels like the Ahsoka that we know and love from the cartoons, brilliantly translated into a live action. That's right. And um, again, just briefly touching on styles yet again, if that was Vader, uh, he would have fought the same way. Uh, we see him in the hallway, meaning, if you mm -hmm. notice the way Vader fights, he doesn't just use his lightsaber, he also uses a lot of force levitation, he mm -hmm. uses a lot of force, but what makes him so powerful is that he can do it all at the same time. Yeah. That's how he beats Luke in Empire. He starts force throwing stuff at him, and Luke isn't good enough yet to, to fight that stuff off and lightsaber duel. <coughs> but when Vader's coming at you, he'll force choke some of you, 
he'll levitate some of you, he'll throw objects at you, and then he'll cut through the rest of you with his lightsaber. That's how powerful, how powerful he is. And his fighting, that's the reason he fights that way. So if he had been standing for that fortress, he would have literally just ripped the door off. And everything that was shot at him, he's fast enough to reflect it back with his lightsaber and then force crush anything mechanical and force choke anything living. Simultaneously. So that's why he doesn't necessarily have to use ninja anything. And that's how he fights. And so, again... The fact that we're focused on these differences is a huge thing. Now, this is what the directors of Captain America, the Winter Soldier said, that we should see a difference between the way Cap fights, Bucky fights, and Natasha fights. And mm-hmm. we did, and Batrock is, and we did, and it's little things like that that make such a huge difference. Okay, so moving on to uh, our main protagonist, Mando and the Child Show Up. And they've got a fully repaired Razor Crest, and they look a little bit more refreshed, and they're having fun in the cockpit, or at least uh, the child's having fun. Mando's trying to decide, you know, is this getting on my nerves or what? <laughs> and uh, so when they get to Caladan, they find a town kind of living in fear. And for me, this was, this was kind of like a, a space samurai Gotham City. Because the town is a little bit dark and they're afraid and they're living in poverty and the threat of the violence because it's a big looming villain. Okay. And Elspeth has prisoners outside of her citadel that she has in electronic uh, chains. So it's like she has that, that living thing in front of you to basically say, don't mess with me. Don't cross me because I'll fry you or I'll incarcerate you and fry you slowly. Okay. So once Mando shows up, then uh, he finds the Citadel and they make a deal. Now, here she comes with a spear of pure Beskar. Now, there's no way Mando could say no to that. But what (laughs) I like about what he does, I mean, how could he possibly? But what I like about what he does in this episode is he does what he always does, which is he says just enough to keep the action rolling, but not enough to commit. So he doesn't really make any hard promises. He doesn't really explicitly say he's going to kill Ahsoka, but he seems to side with Elspeth just to get this thing going because I know he can walk away from uh, that spear. Now, that is one of my nitpicks which i will bring up later in the nitpick section but again they're very very small so just remind me of that um so lang is looking at you know baby yoda and it's like you know what is that or whatever so we get to the next uh scene which is they finally meet and uh i want to spend some time there but before we get to that give me quick impressions of of Elspeth. Give me quick impressions of the main villain here. Don't spend a lot of time with it, but just, you know, uh, we found out about her connection to Bruce Lee and she's got presence, but just what did you think of her? And what did you think of that whole Citadel? Very quickly, uh, start with Steve. Yeah, um, she was an okay villain. I think she's good for a villain of the week, but she's not like really, really deep. The, the thing that really makes her dangerous are two things. One is that she's a really good martial artist, as we find out later. Um, and also that she's really ruthless. Like she really, um, the, she's definitely using uh, force and fear 
to keep this uh, village in line. You, you, and nobody likes her. Like, no, none of the people living there like her. It's just that they're all so scared of her um, and her and her minions, you know, that they're 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 kind of like cowering in fear and, and, and waiting to be liberated. But they they definitely are hoping that Ahsoka will win. I think it's pretty well implied. Um, now, uh, what I, I find that interesting, though, considering who she works for, and uh, I'm not going to spoil who she works for yet, but um, they have a very different way of looking at things because I, I, her boss is usually very, um, shall we say, um, he very much is conscious about the effects of what he says and does. She really doesn't care. Like, she, you can definitely tell that she is very much in the old, uh, old school um, Palpatine school of ruling through fear, and I will just crush your, you uh, just to make sure that nobody rises up against me. Uh, so she's definitely a little bit of that. So I'm kind of curious um, why uh, she would work for the person that I'm thinking of. Um, beyond that, yeah, she's 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 fine. I wouldn't I wouldn't put her up with like the best Imperial villains by any stretch, but um, I think she works for this story. Adequate for this episode. Yes. Go ahead, Nemesis. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's much I can add to what Steve said. Uh, I thought that she had sufficient. Uh, stakes as far as danger to Ahsoka to challenge her. Uh, I thought she wasn't a mustache twirling villain, but was definitely had that feel to her that she's out to uh, impose her will on these poor people and be the the villain in the black hat. And I was fine with that. I completely believed it, but it wasn't over the top and ridiculous. So that was good as well. So all in all, um, just like Steve said, I'd say she was sufficient to the task and and served her purpose to move the plot forward. And, you know, I, I can't ask much more than that. Would it be, you know, you can't always ask for some incredible villain that makes you want to fall in love with them and see them in every episode. So. Cool. Cool. Go ahead, Bracey. No, I'm just going to be echoing the same thing, because uh, as much as I enjoyed uh, uh, Miss Ana Santo, uh she's uh she's not an actress per se uh she's got a a pretty nice career as a stunt woman in hollywood you know because uh bruce lee got her dad involved in that you'd see uh her dad dan popping up uh, often in his heavies uh you might have remembered him from a particularly uh fun fight scene in a bar room in a, a steven seagal film uh where they fight with sticks as a matter of fact his character was called sticks at that time and in another film, he cuts off Burt Reynolds, two of Burt Reynolds' fingers. So he's he's been doing this for a little while. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, the the stunt work is more her thing. But she definitely has enough presence and charisma to pull off the villain of the week. And as you noted, uh, she has the uh, the ruthlessness and the uh, the martial arts acumen needed to be a uh, a credible threat, which is pretty much all you need. So uh, didn't love her, didn't hate her. She's she's just fine for this episode. Very appropriate as a villainous. All righty. Which brings us to pretty much the plot heart of the episode. And that is after Ahsoka and Mando do uh, their little who are you dance. And we also see the power of that Beskar armor again. And how it stops lightsabers, which always just blows my mind. Uh, I, I'm in love with lightsabers like the rest of uh, the world. 
And so whenever I see anything that actually can't cut through, legitimate, that always is just an incredible scene to me. Because these are, you know, probably the most powerful hand weapons in the entire universe. But but when they're stopped by Beskar, that just always elevates uh, Mandel and his armor and everything that he stands for in my eyes. It's a visual, and it just really blows me away. So they have their little initial struggle, and from what we've seen from Ahsoka, you know, she could carve him, but for that armor. So that really changes the game. What do you do when you're used to fighting with a weapon that can't be resisted, but you find the one thing that it can't cut through, or one of the few things, because there are a couple of things lightsabers can't cut through, because we see those staffs in uh, Revenge of the Sith. They can't cut through those either. But it's just, that always just blows me away. But anyway, so they calm down, and they begin to have a conversation, and it is a break in the momentum, because everything has been, you know, action-packed, really tense up to this point. But we have more relaxed scenes. And what we see happening is Ahsoka communicates with Grogu on a deeper force level. Because Grogu doesn't speak English and he barely understands Mando sometimes. Grogu seems to understand uh, hand motions, emotions, feelings, intentions, head nods, things like that doesn't speak English, he's not like Yoda in that regard. So Ahsoka taps into basically the force sensitivity and the information that comes from it and does kind of a gentle mind meld through the force, which is another power that is often used but rarely explained. And this is where we get our, basically our information uh, dump about the child. That's where we find out his backstory, that he was raised in the Jedi Temple and he studied under many masters. And then at the end of the Clone Wars, somebody took Grogu away, but he had to suppress his force abilities to survive. Because uh, we've been calling him Baby Yoda, which is not accurate. We've been calling him the child, but he's got a real name. And he responds to that name as soon as he hears it. But what she does in this scene and then she says after he leaves the temple his memory becomes dark and then she's going to test him and see what he can do so all of that happens in this little exchange and it's incredible but probably the peak of it the apex of it is when she says when she senses his fear and his apprehension but she explains why he's got that fear and that apprehension because he was able to survive the Clone Wars. He was able to survive what happens when the Emperor just turned the galaxy to crap. But he did so by suppressing his Force-sensitive abilities. And now he's afraid to use them. So it's like having your arm in a sling for years. And then somebody tells you to take your arm out of that sling and use it again. You know, your arm has been dormant. You're not going to know what to do. You got to get feeling going. You got to get blood flow going. You got to, you know, get your confidence going. And all of that plays out in this scene. And of course, the biggest part is when Ahsoka decides she can't train him 
because he has fear and apprehension and strong force power. And she says she's seen what such feelings can do even to the best of us. So without saying his name, she makes the biggest reference to Anakin Skywalker we've seen so far in The Mandalorian. And once again, that's what I mean when I say it's such a brilliant writing uh, uh, expositional stroke to have the pall of the fall to the dark side of what could have been the greatest hero, the chosen one, the one that was going to bring balance to the force, the one that was going to destroy the Sith, the one that they reluctantly pinned their hopes on because they didn't really believe in him and they want, didn't want to train him, but they gave him a shot. And uh, on top of that, if you know anything about Clone Wars and Rebels, you know anything about their personal relationship and how she trained under him and how that developed over time and the impact that's had on Ahsoka. And she says she's not going to put someone else down that path. Now, that changes the whole game because she just said that Grogu could possibly become like a Darth Yoda. That he's at a point in his development where he's going to have to choose which path he follows. And Ahsoka's like, I'm not fully developing these force abilities with someone that's still afraid and with some darkness and attached to you and all that different kind of stuff. It was just so deep. We could do a whole podcast just on that conversation. But it's such a game changer. It adds such new layers to the Force, and it swings us back towards the Force having everything to do with your character and your choices, and with your destiny having everything to do with how you, you choose to deal with your situations. And Ahsoka is shook. She's so shook by her experience with Anakin. She's like, I don't want to have anything to do with maybe even possibly turning someone else into another Sith Lord. So, I mean, it is just so powerful, even though, again, the momentum is broken. It is so powerful. You're going to have to watch it a few times to really get all the layers. So I can't wait to hear my guest host's thoughts on this one because this is just, we could actually have a book on this one. This is even deeper. This is reminiscent of Luke being on Dagobah in Empire when he first meets Yoda and he trains with him. This is a mirror scene of that, but it's even more intense because remember in Empire, Luke had to go into the cave and face his dark side. This is that in The Mandalorian, but it has the same kind of power even without the same kind of visuals, which is just exceptional. So I tip my hat to Filoni. So let me hear your thoughts. Start with Nemesis. Um, hmm. I agree with everything you said about Grogu and what you were talking about uh, as far as referencing Darth Vader and the fact that for the first time, this show is acknowledging the dark potential of Grogu, something that we've speculated about since this series started, basically. And I appreciate that, and it's frightening at the same time. And it, there are so many possible directions that could go with that that it's fascinating. I think the one thing that I read into this and the kind of what I wanted to spend my time on was 
Ahsoka's approach and why she chose not to train Grogu. I think there was a lot of wisdom in her decision, a lot of uh, looking at past events of what happened with Anakin, what happened with Obi-Wan, of not giving into the hu- into hubris. But I also think it reveals quite a bit about Ahsoka's pain and her wounds and her character and cements her Ronin status for me even more. She is now a solitary traveler who has, she was wounded to the quick by the betrayal of Anakin, by the death of the Jedi, even though she had been uh, kicked out of the Jedi Order at that point. She had seen all of the things that had gone wrong with the Jedi Order and her own betrayal at the hands of certain Jedi. She's seen all of this, and I think that that has contributed to the path that she now walks. And I'm not going to call it cowardice because it's certainly not cowardice, but she's certainly reticent about attaching herself to anyone or anything. Even in Rebels, when she attached herself and, and, and helped teach Ezra and was part of the rebel movement, that didn't end exactly well either. And it ended up with a, a showdown between herself and her former master and Darth Vader um, in that temple. You know, so attaching herself and being part of something greater than herself has brought her nothing but pain and betrayal. And that is a lot of what I got out of this scene as well. So even though I think she definitely has very much attuned to the force she's seen some of the possibilities of grogu's future she's seen that she is attached to this man uh she has i think correctly uh into uh what's the word i'm looking at? used her intuition to see that if she steps into the situation she could probably do much more damage than she could do good and, but I also think that she knows for herself what her limitations are, what her wounds are, what her scars are, that she wouldn't be able to be that teacher even if she wanted to, and it was needed. And I think looking forward, a certain character who's not, who should not be named, who comes right in and takes the child with no hesitation uh sloppy spoilers i think that says a lot about the fact that maybe he has not walked that path doesn't know much as much about himself and given what we know about movies that come afterwards and certain failures maybe he's repeating the mistakes of other jedi masters that came before him yeah it really throws those kinds of questions onto the table and if you go back and listen to vader's dialogue in empire he keeps talking about destiny he keeps talking about what luke is destined to do and where his fate lies and how obi-wan knew that you also see uh because obi-wan admits it later you also see a bit of the presumptive arrogance that obi-wan had when he thought he could take anakin under his wing and train him because in Jedi, you see old Ben realizing that was a bit of an arrogant move 
for him to think that he could train Anakin the way Yoda trained him. And that's precisely because of what Ahsoka says here, that when someone is still dealing with that fear and that anger, you have to be triple careful because you're giving them power. You're giving them force power. You're giving them the ability to tap into the living energy field that surrounds all things, and they can manipulate it. And when you could do it at the level that Anakin could, so they should have spent a lot more time on character and emotional control with Anakin than they did, but they figured that out too late. And again, it's just it's just brilliant because it does add that hidden darker layer that we've always suspected to Grogu, and it also makes it seem like he has a real choice in this thing. He doesn't have to become another Yoda if he doesn't want to. But the one thing she says at the end that it's better that his abilities fade, that was interesting as well. Because she, she kind of says his force powers are kind of use it or lose it, which I thought was very interesting. Go ahead, Steve, your thoughts on all this, because I know this is a lot. Yeah, yeah, and I think I agree with both of uh, what you've uh, said so far. Um, I just kind of want to dive a little bit into Ahsoka a little deeper, because um, I think it goes just beyond those things. Um, if you look at Ahsoka, Ahsoka, she is an extremely damaged character for a number of reasons. Uh, she spent um, much of her childhood fighting a, a war that turned out to be for nothing, because all it did was lead to the rise of the Empire. Um, she never had a real childhood. You know, she was adopted by this group of, of warrior monks and then basically given a lightsaber and say, yeah, go ahead and fight those robots <laughs> for the good of the Republic. And then nothing turns out the way that she envisioned it. And then even the people that were in her order, she no longer could trust um, because uh, they, they were not there for her when she needed them. You know, she was framed, um, I, I believe, by Palpatine um in uh season five of the clone wars and um you know the only person who was there for her who really stood up for her was anakin you know who later came went on to betray her later um so you know she is very very wounded character i think the only person she really trusts and can really feels like she could rely on is captain rex um at this point so yeah she's somebody who who is really damaged um and then after that you know fighting her old master like uh, uh nemesis was saying a little bit ago um you know the and and i think that's kind of where she really revealed herself in many ways was during that fight with vader because you know he, he at one point um he kind of throws anakin's old words back in her face saying uh that is not the jedi way and she said i am no jedi like at that point, she had completely like broken with them. And on top of that, you know, she was drawing more on her own anger and her own pain um, a little bit on the dark side. She hadn't quite crossed it. But, you know, you could tell all that is still there. And even now it's not gone. And we see that, um, you know, when she talks about, no, I can't train him. Um, you know, I'm, I'm worried about what might happen. Like if the greatest of us, you know, could fall, you know, what about him? And and. And I think it, it not just reveals um, like the potential dangers. I think it reveals her own fears about herself because she's not just uh, training an apprentice. She is raising a child. He is asking, uh, Mando is asking her to raise my baby. And I think it reminds me a little bit of um, the boys um, at the end of the season when um, Butcher uh, says, no, I can't raise a super kid. 
I can't raise a super kid because I'm worried about imposing my own crap on this child, and he deserves better than that. I'm wondering if Ahsoka feels the same way that Butcher does, that she's afraid that if she takes the responsibility of raising this child, she is going to imbue him with her own pain, her own struggle, her, her, you know, her own fears, and it's going to go wrong and he's going to go to the dark side. Um, I, I think that she um, also doesn't have very much uh, faith in herself to be able to teach him. Um, I think she doesn't have feel like she has enough control of herself uh, to be patient with the kid when he needs patience. Um, I think a lot of it comes from her own self-doubt um, and her own doubts about her ability uh, to train him and to raise him and be a, a parental figure to him. So all, all of these things, I think, are coming together. And I, and I think as much as she may, you know, care for Grogu on some level, I think she knows, no, I, I think what's best for him is somebody who doesn't have my baggage uh, to raise this child, uh, to train this child. And ultimately, that's what happens. Um, and, and I think that there are valid concerns about, you know, the person at the end of the season repeating the errors of Obi-Wan and, and whatnot. But I think in a way it's almost freeing because this person does not have the baggage uh, of the Clone Wars, does not have all of the, you know, the scars of the Clone Wars and, and of the rebellion, um, you know, to burden this person. You know, it, it, instead, the the Jedi in question, the Jedi master in question, you know, can just go in and do what he needs to be done. Um, so I think that that's a lot of what's going on with Ahsoka. I, I think a lot of it is her own lingering fears, her own lingering self-doubt, her lingering, you know, remnants of anger and pain from the war and not wanting it to perpetuate uh, the, uh, the, the the tragedies that she witnessed and that she lived through. So, yeah, I, I think it's very she's a, it, all this is really, really interesting. And there are a lot of really deep implications, as you guys have been saying. Uh Part of the best part of really good villains, see, what doesn't get you is lies. Straight up lies, out and out lies are not what get you. What gets you is partial truths, half truths, truths out of context. And as I was watching this episode and as we've been talking, I realized there's something that the emperor kept saying when he was still Palpatine, when he became the emperor in the Charles Soule, Darth Vader books that I'm reading. Something the Emperor kept saying that was actually true, and it's brought out by this scene, and that is that the Emperor always said the Jedi didn't know enough about the Force. That's actually true. <laughs> and we keep seeing the fallout of that. It kind of it kind of comes to a, a head with Anakin, but it's true. It's true. And you can understand a little bit better how Palpatine got in Anakin's head because he was like, well, I'll never actually get on the path that I need to get on to become what I need to become to save Padme and be better than I am now. Because I'm being trained by people that either have partial knowledge or they're withholding so much from me. It's not going to do me the good that I need. And that changes everything when you understand what might have been going on in Anakin's head after he listened to Palpatine. And this is what Ahsoka kind of brings out with this scene. Go ahead, Bracey. Yeah, I'm going to, since you guys have really covered this, I'm going to bring this into a broader context because uh, I have been rewatching uh, the prequels and Clone Wars a bit lately to uh, really get uh, get into this. 
and uh, exploring some uh, some other YouTubers' uh, really good videos on the subject. Ahsoka is indeed wise not to take on the child. Uh, she was never the best Jedi, if you will, in terms of what the Jedi mean. Uh, it's one of the reasons I think uh, she was very clearly given to Anakin because Anakin was far more reckless than the Jedi uh, alike. And uh, the only reason he probably wasn't kicked out of the order is he had this whole thing about being the chosen one and the fact that in spite of his recklessness, Anakin got results. Very early in uh, Ahsoka's career, she made some disastrous mistakes, which cost many, many clone lives and the lives of, uh, of other uh, rebel soldiers. And so she had some hard lessons to learn because she she came into Anakin's care very arrogant, more like a Anakin uh, 2.0 to the plus. And she evolved greatly over the course of the series. And uh, even after she's left, uh, she's she has this disillusionment with the Jedi and she leaves, even though she's given that offer to come back. Uh, she knows she's she's kind of dancing around the dark side. Uh, I guess she's a she's a, not quite Mason windowing it because he's still very Jedi, even though he flirts with the dark side a little bit. But the fact in like Clone Wars season seven, she's willing to team up with Maul. She's willing to, to team up with the lesser evil to deal with the greater evil until that whole scene falls apart. And that's very telling right there. Uh, Ahsoka is very aware of the fact that, as she states when she fights Vader, I am no Jedi. And she clearly thinks that this child needs to be raised by a Jedi, somebody with a temple aesthetics. And as you stated, the Emperor does tell the truth as well as lies. And one of the things he does say is that the Jedi don't know enough about the Force. And not only that, they don't know enough about uh, people. This is one of the reasons why they raise the, the children that they find are Force-sensitive from birth. The downfall of the Jedi doesn't come with Anakin. The downfall of the Jedi comes with Qui-Gon. Whereas the Jedi had become uh, kind of stagnant. Uh, you, you see it in the course of the prequel films. They're, they're very stagnant. They're not really on the ball. They're not all that in tune with the Force, really. I mean, even with Yoda spending all of his time in meditation, the one Jedi who is in touch with the living Force 24-7, the one Jedi who is a master who's not allowed to be on the Jedi Council is Qui-Gon because he bows to the living Force. He lets the Force guide him in every single moment. He is the true believer of the Jedi Order at that time. And because of this, he was at odds with the Council. Now, he understood more than they did. When Anakin comes in, they try to treat him uh, like just another Jedi, even though it's like, oh, you know, he's too old. It was very arrogant of Obi-Wan to try and do what his master did. I understand he's trying to honor his master. But it was an arrogant move because Anakin was just barely above being a boy himself now, coming into being a Jedi Knight, whereas Qui-Gon was a, a master and a true father figure. He could have raised uh, he could have raised him properly. He could have raised Anakin properly. Uh, up until that point, uh, Obi-Wan had seen Anakin as nothing but like a bother. It's like, why are we dragging around this kid and this weird alien, all these other people? Like, come on, master, we, we don't need to be doing all this. And let's remember that Ahsoka also understands the fact that she never even made it to Jedi Knight, if I'm not mistaken. She left before she ever had her trial. She was still a Padawan. So she understands uh, her wisdom has been learned in the wild, if you will. And it's still not in that proper 
sort of Jedi aesthetic. And I'm just going to go ahead and spoil this. The guy that we keep talking about at the end, because this is a relevant point, is, in fact, Big Daddy Luke Skywalker. And I think the reason he is the proper one to take the child when you get right down to it, when he takes Grogu, is because he is the most hopeful character in all of Star Wars. He sees the good in everybody. He's always making the right decisions. And there's this interesting parallel between him, between Luke and Anakin, because Anakin was always flying in the face of what the Jedi wanted him to do. What does Luke do? He keeps flying in the face of what Yoda and Obi-Wan want him to do. But he's not doing what he wants to do, whereas Anakin wanted to, you know, uh, start out with like, oh, adventure, excitement, this is all fun. And like Luke did start this way, but eventually it's all like, my friends are being tortured. I got to save my friends. Oh, my dad's the most evil guy in the universe. I got to save my dad. This is the guy who can properly raise and train Grogu. And I really hope that their future plans are with the Ahsoka because in the, the logo that they did for Ahsoka, there's that whole kind of veil of the force symbology. I'm, I'm hoping they're just going to wipe out the whole timeline where Luke becomes a failure because I think this is the right path. You got to give this a, uh, this child who could go either way to the most hopeful guy in the universe, because that's the only chance he has. Now, I was going to say, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to say that this also brings out the contrast in Luke and why Luke's character is so important, because in the midst of the worst time of the galaxy, he feels good in his father and he believes his father can be redeemed. That's the turning point of the war. Uh, and like we said at the end here, when he takes Grogu, because he's not afraid of what Grogu's struggling with. All of the things that Ahsoka senses, Luke senses them too. And he's like, no worries, no problem. We can deal with it. That's what makes Luke Skywalker, Luke Skywalker. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when you change that about him, since I say this all the time, especially about characters like Superman, if you don't understand why they are who they are, it's not the powers. It's who they are as a person. And the powers are an extension of that. And once you start messing around with that, you you ruin the character, which is exactly what happens later. But anyway, that's a whole nother part, too. So Ooh, I, I, I have stuff to say about that, but I, I will hold it back for that other pod. Because <laughs> I feel very, I love Luke, but I feel very differently about Luke in, in some ways of what you were talking about. So, Oh, that's awesome. We are definitely going to have to dive into that. Okay, we need to get through this because I knew this could be two hours by itself. That's how good yeah. this episode was. So anyway, so they combine forces and Mando utters a great line, which is almost like a movie line. Uh, Mandalorian and a Jedi, they'll never see it coming. So <laughs> that's exactly what so happens. They go it just back might to, work. <laughs> that's right. They go back. Right. So crazy just might work. That's exactly right. So they go back to Elsbeth's uh, tower and basically tag team them. But uh, Ahsoka shows up first and goes against her forces. And again, when she's just carving through these huge metal objects, uh, a bell or whatever that thing was she carved into. It really looked like a big oversized chess piece made out of steel. But whatever it was, man, she's ninjaing, she's jumping, she's flipping, she's disappearing, she's turning her blades on and off. Sometimes the blades 
look like the shorter one is shorter. Sometimes they look like they're the same length. If you know anything about lightsabers, you know the Jedi can do that. They can change the length of the blade. They can change the intensity of the way the blade burns. Uh, a lot of different things you can do if you know anything about Star Wars lore. So just so much happens in that fight, and it's so good. And then she faces off uh, against Elspeth personally, and they have a Kill Bill-type fight. And then Mando and Lang are listening to it outside the wall, and they're listening to see who wins, which is really, really interesting. And so the fighting is so good. It's so good. And uh, Mando does a surprise thing, and that's what's lying like, I guess you threw in with the Jedi. And Mando's like, yeah, it looks like. And uh, <laughs> so I really liked it. So um, uh, we're just going to wrap all this stuff up in this last couple of scenes because we could definitely keep going. But we also have to mention, okay, probably the second biggest name drop, even though Anakin is not named. There is someone that is named. It's who, it's who Ahsoka was after all along. And we know why once we hear the name. And that name is none other than Grand Admiral Thrawn. Now, if you know anything about Grand Admiral Thrawn, he was introduced in Heir to the Empire, Timothy Zahn's novel, all the way back in 91. If you're a longtime Star Wars fan, you know that Timothy Zahn is the man that kept Star Wars alive. I don't care what anybody says. He's the one that kept, kept it alive for fans. Absolutely. Yep. And uh, we always give him the credit for that. But he introduced such a deep story world. And he gave us Mara Jade. Oh, my mm -hmm. goodness. He gave us the hand of the emperor. So, I mean, okay, again, that's another pod because we need to do that one, too. So when Ahsoka drops, or when Ahsoka, yeah, drops that name, asking Elspeth where he is, that's another game changer. That is an absolutely game-changing revelation about this story world, about the Star Wars world, about what can happen going forward if Thrawn is still out there. Because Thrawn, if you don't know anything about Thrawn, uh, you, uh, I could do a whole pot on him, but basically he outthinks you. He studies you. He gets to learn how you think through your art, and then he outthinks you. Right. He oh. out chess <laughs> right? He outchesses you. My Somebody phone, said it's going to ring while I'm taping the podcast. Of course it will. <laughs> so, um, well, if there's any villain that deserves a red alert, so red alert. On yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's right. It's Promise attacking. So, I mean, once again, this episode, once again, once again, just turns up the heat in a possible way. So I want to hear you guys' thoughts on that entire ending on the fight between Elspeth and Ahsoka, Mando and Lang, the revelation of Thrawn, and uh, then we'll just hit on the thing at the end because we've got to do the nitpick section. But yeah, so so the final fight and how all that plays out. Start with Bracey. Uh, I'll keep this brief since we spend so much time on that uh, Grogu section. One of the things I loved about this uh, this whole storming of the fortress is it reminds me of, uh, of some movies like uh, uh, Throne of Blood or Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but at the same time, also uh, movies like uh, A Few Dollars More. I believe that's the one with uh, Clint Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef, because mm -hmm. they, they did two together in that series. Where they uh, they're entering into a village trying to uh, 
hunt down this gang because they're they're both bounty hunting. And I love the juxtaposition between Ahsoka crouching Tigerin all over the place, and there's Din Djarin walking straight down the middle, old Wild West style. I love how seamlessly these two things fit together in the hands of a really good director. Uh, you know, it doesn't feel jarring at all to see uh, Ahsoka doing her thing while Din Djarin's like uh, ducking and dodging uh, blaster bolts and uh, returning fire. And, of course, the um, the final fight at the end... Uh, Anytime I think about it, I keep hearing the the music from Kill Bill when uh, when uh, Uma Thurman uh, faces off against uh, uh, Lucy Liu. I keep hearing that that, that uh, <laughs> kind of wooden clacking music, even though that wasn't present in there. And uh, but it's like you said, the sound design is so very important to Star Wars, and there's so many little subtle cues. Uh, we'll get into it later with another uh, uh, famous character who appears. Um, who I didn't catch in the first season, but later on I caught it. Uh, the fact that when, uh, we thought like uh, the, the steps of this guy uh, made was like, oh, maybe that's Cad Bane. It sounds like Spurs. No, there's another character who has that sort of thing. So sound design is so important. And you even talked about how like aggressive Ahsoka's uh, lightsaber is because they can, they can roll them out or they can snap them on in an instant. And it reminded me of the fact that um, – when uh, when Palpatine fights uh, uh, Darth Maul and his brother, Savage Press, his lightsabers have a much lower throttled thrum, which sounds a lot more em- uh, ominous when uh, when they're having that fight. So, like, I love the fight, fact that these guys are paying attention to all those details because whoever was doing Lucas's sound design back when he was doing the films himself was quite a genius. Uh, there, there's so many intricate and unique sounds that are native only to the Star Wars universe, and I love how they they don't just have the visual aesthetics in this show, but they also have the uh, the audio aesthetics. And come on, Thrawn, yeah, I'm so in because it's awesome. It just see this is good writing. It opens up the possibilities, opens up the possibilities of everything that can happen after this. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, um, I, I agree with all that. And I will say, um, I actually, a couple of times, the first time I saw this, um, I went back and watched it again, you know, to the tune of the uh, Kill Bill, uh, Let Me Please Be Misunderstood. Um, and it fits perfectly, <laughs> absolutely perfectly to the time, to the to the, to the second. I, I thought, thought it, that was just absolutely amazing. These people did their homework. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, and that and that whole fight, um, you, you know, the the whole plot itself is pretty standard. It's pretty straightforward. The thing is, is that the execution is so good, and, and that it's entertaining. And uh, they managed to seamlessly weave in a samurai plot and a gunslinger plot um, together, and it doesn't feel in any way uh, unnatural about that. And part of it is because the two genres are so similar, and they feed into each other so much. Um, because uh, the, the, a lot of a lot of westerns were based on samurai films, and and so there is a bit of crossover. But here they made it into one story, and that makes it interesting. Um, and I thought that um, all the stuff with uh, Din Djarin and Michael Bean was excellent. Uh, they really needed a a villain with a lot of gravitas uh, to be an, a gunslinger opposite uh, Mando, 
and man, Michael Bean is so great. This, that, that, that guy, that guy is, is a legend and for good reason. And, and even though he feels like he maybe lost a couple of steps, uh, he's still very good in that role. Um, and somebody said, I think that he had done Westerns at one point that shows too, because he definitely plays like a Western character or a Western, uh, gunslinger villain. He was, uh, he was opposite Val Kilmer in Tombstone. Ah, okay. Yeah. Then, then that, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I thought that he had, I just forgot what he was in because there's like a long gap between like aliens and, and this episode. And I keep uh, forgetting what he, what and all he's in and in between that. Uh, but, uh, but Johnny Ringo, right? Yeah. Johnny Ringo. Okay. And he was also in uh Navy steals and the abyss uh, for movie fans out there. Yeah. Well, yeah. Another Cameron film. So this guy's a Cameron staple and it just, and, and that just adds to his, you know, absolute value in, in, into this whole story. Um, but yeah. And beyond that, um, I, I will kind of get back again to the fact that uh, Diana Lee and Santo is just the perfect actress to play a, a martial arts villain. Uh, mm. She's, she's absolutely uh, acts like somebody who has studied Jean Kudo, um, somebody who is definitely of the Bruce Lee school of martial arts. And I think David, uh, you mentioned uh, the Wing Chun uh, style being in there. I mean, I'm pretty sure that that was definitely what they were going for. So she's almost like very much kind of like a crouching tiger type of character fighting a samurai character. And it just feels very natural the way that it's directed and, and choreographed. Um, I thought that that was really good. Um, as far as Thrawn goes, it, it opens a lot of questions, but they don't answer them this season. And so the thing you kind of want to know is where does Thrawn fit into all this? Is this oh, something... Well. Well, you're going to have to watch Ahsoka for that. That that was my question. Are we going to have to watch Ahsoka for that? Um, are we going to find out that Thrawn is a bigger player behind Moff Gideon? Uh, is there, you know, a larger uh, thing going on with that? Um, you know, what exactly is he doing and, and how this is connected? And uh, since we know that Thrawn is alive, uh, I think it's very likely that we'll also find Ezra Bridger, as I believe Nemesis mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So so the, the question is, you know, is she looking for Thrawn because Thrawn is up to something and she just wants to bring this guy in? Or is she going after him in the hopes of finding Ezra? Um, you know, we haven't heard uh, anything about uh, Sabine, uh, who has also been looking for him. Um, but I'm, I'm very, very curious to see where that goes. And it opens so many questions. But I think, yeah, probably likely is uh, this episode being very much a backdoor pilot. Um, and I think that they raised this question in part, you know, to raise demand for a show, you know, with the idea of, oh, you want to know what Ahsoka has been up to? You know, why don't we have this show so that you can find this out? Uh, and to raise demand for that. And it, it worked. <laughs> I can't complain about that. It absolutely works as an actor pilot, and it absolutely works as a Mando uh, Western shootout. Um, I have no complaints whatsoever. That's what I was going to say. If they're going to whet your appetite to see more of Ahsoka, they could not possibly have done it any better than this. Yeah. So fan of the character, you want to see what happens next. You know, you at least have to watch the pilot. Go ahead, Nemesis. Well, I have to say that Steve not only stole Jeff's stuff, now he stole my stuff as well. So. No, Steve! <laughs> <laughs> but, We're all uh, on the same, it's our fault for being all on the same page as well. As yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think it is very, very obvious that Disney saw the success of The Mandalorian, had plans for other series, and that this episode was written as a gateway drug for Ahsoka. But, big but here. <laughs> But there are two ways to do this. There's the ham-fisted way that looks so obvious and is terrible and makes you cringe and never want to watch the follow-up series. And then there's this. 
this was done perfectly. I, I'm a hundred percent certain it was written and the characters that were used were as a way to get you into Ahsoka. And I don't care because it was so good. And mm. it makes me want to see Ahsoka. It makes me want to see live action Sabine. It makes me want to see her find Thrawn, them find Thrawn. It makes me want to see Ezra Bridger come in. It makes me want to see the three of them eventually meet up with Bo-Katan. It makes me want to see all of that. And and I don't know if it's going to happen, but just the thought that it could happen has me intrigued and ready to watch it. So kudos to them. They've got my money, you know, that which is what they want. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that if they're giving us good stuff. As far as the Western concept, you guys have hit it all. I'm just gonna, the only last thing I'm going to say because we're running long on time is that I will see Jeff's Lee Van Cleef and raise you a John McClane. I was ready for uh, I was ready for uh, very nice Jarn to take you know to come out and look at uh, Michael Bean and be say yippee kaye mother effer and then you know get him so so yeah okay. you know it definitely had that feeling. Hey, briefly, we're going to wrap up with the nitpick section because we have gone long, but that's how good this episode was. Nitpick section, and again, they're very small. You guys can agree or disagree. But I have just two or three nitpicks. First nitpick I have is <clears throat> Mando seems to not want to accept the best car sphere at first as a matter of honor because he didn't finish the job, which is really funny because two episodes from now, He's going to be making that same argument on the other side of it. Yeah. And so if you've already seen the episode, you know what I'm talking about. But we'll wait till we get there on that pod. But he's going to be doing the same thing he's saying he doesn't want to do now with even greater stakes at play. So I was like, eh, I don't know. I don't know if that was a uh, moral or character glitch or maybe I'm just being nitpicky. That's why it's in the nitpicky section. My second nitpick is, uh, once again, Two episodes from now, uh, spoiler, he's going to say goodbye to Grogu for real. The whole hinge of Grogu's un undisciplined emotions have to do with his attachment to Mando. And this was, it's like there's no way you knew this was it. So they, they tried to play it like, you know, Mando's like, okay, time to go, time to do whatever. But you know, you're like, no, no, this isn't it. Even if Ahsoka hadn't said what she said, and that just felt kind of funny to me, felt a little bit disingenuous. But I'm being nitpicky. This is a nitpick section. Did you hear me say that? And the third one is, <clears throat> it feels a little MacGuffin-y when they have to keep going from planet to planet and person to person to get what they want. So what Ahsoka says after she decides she can't train him is that now they've got to go to yet another planet and then he's got to sit on the magic toilet. And if he sits on the magic toilet and it doesn't flush, <laughs> then, <laughs> then maybe. Well, that's in my head now. That's right. So maybe a Jedi will hear the fact that you can't flush and come and flush the toilet. <laughs> and then maybe they'll train you. But there's so few Jedi out, Jedi out there. So it's another crapshoot. <laughs> I just felt like to me, like, you know, that's what the wizard said to Dorothy and them. You know, go bring me the, the broomstick of the witch and go do this and go do that. And then at the end, Glenda's like, oh, there is no need. You could have clicked your heels. So it's like, what? <laughs> and so 
that's what that felt like to me. I'm like, we have to do another chance to find maybe it'll send out a signal and maybe a Jedi will find them and maybe Grogu can get you. No, no. That felt very, we're not into, you know, Rise of Skywalker territory with MacGuffins, but it felt a little bit like that. Like, y'all keep saying, I need to find Mandalorian so I can find Jedi. Then we find a Jedi. They're like, well, nope, not this Jedi. I'm like, oh, okay. Maybe I'm being nitpicky. It just kind of felt that way to me. The good news is it pays in the last episode so well until it makes you not care. But until you see episode eight, this feels like, you know, okay, we have to pack up and leave this world and chase something else again. And it's all on a bunch of maybes. And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. Just felt funny. So give me a quick comments on that, and then we got to wrap up because we're over time. Go ahead, Bracey. Uh, yeah, just a, a quick comment outside of that. Uh, it's like I, I believe Steve Renamis has said that the uh, – or one of you guys said, like, how the, the Western and the Samurai work together. I got thinking about how well Ahsoka and Din Djarin work together because they're both these loner characters of few words as a, as a Samurai or a ninja and a – uh, classic Western gunfighter typically are in a lot of these films. So that was really nice. But as for the nitpicks, uh, the only thing that really got me is uh, I know it slowed down a little bit. And then uh, I knew that Grogu wasn't going to go away just yet. And this, this whole episode was really, was really, really, it's very easy to see. It's really a setup for the, uh, it's, it's the Ahsoka pilot basically. Um, and, and, you know, it, I enjoyed it enough that that didn't really bother me. I think in a broader context, it might have, uh, but I was okay with it. As far as like the bouncing around world to world, I've heard other people have the same issue. But I was watching an interview with George Lucas, and one of his objectives was is he he liked taking uh, each movie was taking you to a different world, different world, different world, showing you something new because George Lucas at heart is a world builder. So he's uh, he's really wanting to show you uh, all the the great breadth of this world, all this stuff he's created, all these fantabulous things. Now, uh, I understand it would be nice if you had like just one world to explore, like, say, Cameron's Pandora, which was like this really rich and very well-developed ecosystem. But I, for one, like the fact that they're still in that George Lucas vein where they they are bouncing around from world to world. It would be nice to have a few episodes that were consecutively on the same world for a while, but at least we do keep going back to the worlds that we've been to as well as exploring new worlds. So I uh, maybe it's just because I'm that kind of guy. I like the world building. I like to see more of the universe out there, and it's a big galaxy. All right. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot to add. The main thing that I would kind of focus on is the fact that um, structurally this this episode is kind of by the numbers. It's it's nothing, you know, really amazing in terms of the way that it's designed. Um, What makes it really great is the fact that it's a crowd pleaser, that it's a lot of fun to watch, that we love these characters so much and we love watching them interact. Uh, We you know, we love the, the fight scenes. We you know, all of these references to cool things that we know. Um, this is what kind of keeps us in and keeps us invested, you know, new developments about characters uh, that we've stuck with for a while that are a little bit new. So all these all these things are execution things 
that raise uh, what is otherwise a pretty standard episode um, in terms of structure. And, you know, and also this is not really an episode that's very good at hiding its influences. I mean, you can definitely see, yeah, there's the Western gunfight and, oh, look, there's the Kill Bill fight and, and, and all these kinds of things that are there. That, and you definitely see them. Oh, the misunderstanding battle over here. You know, for those of us who see the code, I mean, you know, it's going to be one of those things that's like, okay, fine, you know, let's move on. But here's the thing is like we're all fans, too. And so because of that, we appreciate um, the way that they made it work and the way that they made it work and how artfully uh, it is executed is what makes this a really great episode. But the actual uh, the actual structure and the skeleton you know, it's the same thing that we've seen, you know, hundreds of times before. But this is why, like a lot of times with writing, it's the way that you do it that matters more than what you use. And I think that that comes across here. So, yeah, it, it definitely is not like, you know, the, the greatest uh, episode of a TV show ever made. But it's uh, so much fun. And, it, and it's so much fun that you want to go back and rewatch it because uh, it, it's the kind of show that puts a smile on your face. Yes, yes. The way you do it, not just what you do. Very good. Go ahead, Nemesis. Yeah, just to build on Steve real quick, what Steve was saying, you know, not every high, everything has to be high fantasy. It doesn't always have to be Lord of the Rings. Sometimes it's good enough to just give me some orcs and some elves and some humans killing each other. And as long as it's done well, I'll enjoy it. So um, my two things are really nitpicky. I, I really are. They're, they're the kinds of things where you read between the lines and, and the, whoever the writer is is like, what kind of asshole is looking that far down, you know, but that I'm that asshole. So um, <laughs> the first one is the thing with uh, Bando and when he cut the deal with, with the bad guy with Elspeth. I'm like, has this woman not ever cut a deal with a Mandalorian before? You would think that it would be you know, or a bounty hunter, you would think you would be very, very careful about getting the wording right to make sure that you leave no possible wiggle room for you to get screwed on the back end. So that's what my one nitpick right there, you know, especially someone who has probably dealt with bounty hunters before. It's like you, you're it's like dealing with a GD, you know, everybody knows if you're going to make a wish with a GD, you better make it an airtight wish so you can't get screwed. Mm-hmm. And, and then the second one has to do with the exposition from uh, Ahsoka about Grogu's backstory. I understand that she was a vehicle, a, a storytelling vehicle there to get out his backstory and everything, but I'm sitting there thinking about the fact that Ahsoka was a, a Padawan at that time. Uh, she left the Jedi Order and was kicked out, and yet she knew, and obviously a bunch of other people knew, all about this, you know, wunderkin who's being trained by all these jedi masters and then suddenly when the temple was attacked he was whisked away by person unknown who may be revealed in a later episode and all of this other stuff so i'm just sitting there thinking to myself you know on on a very surface level as i'm watching it i'm like yeah i'll accept it i don't mind i'm having fun i'm just gonna take it as gospel and move on but when i start to like dissect it and get into it i'm kind of like this seems awful convenient how would she know all that who are these people? Why was Grogu? You know, the questions just start building up and it's very nitpicky and it's very nerdy and I'll freely admit it. But those are my two nitpicks. All right. Well, as everybody can see, we could go on and on about this. You know, 
yep. coming at it from a writer's code perspective, a fan perspective. I mean, just so much here. But that's how you want to pack your writing. That's what, how you want to pack your episodes until your audience really can't get enough of it. And there's so much there to take deep dives into. It makes you want to watch it over and over again. And the reason I say that is because that has been the battle for Star Wars. Episodes like this that deepen the lore, answer some questions and raise more. And content that trashes the lore, trashes the characters, turns them into something that they're not and divides the fan base. And that's still ongoing. That still hasn't been settled. That's still very much a real thing. All right, folks, so that's it for this episode. As you can see, we actually could have gone another hour talking about all this stuff. And I will repeat to those of you that are writers, when we talk about it from a writer's perspective, this is the kind of writing you want to do. Layered, um, being obvious when you need to be, when it doesn't take away from your story, being subtle and nuanced when you need to be. Uh, so much is done just with the visuals because we find out who Ahsoka is in the beginning without a line of dialogue. This is just brilliant. This is what it looks like when you have a creative team that loves the lore, loves the characters, and loves the fans. And this is definitely uh, the side I always want to end up on. Whenever I'm writing anything, I want to write about stuff I love. I want to write characters that I love, even characters that I love to hate. And I want people that, that love the same stuff I do to get into it the way I do. That's what this episode accomplishes. That's why we can't stop raving about it. All right, that's it for this week's episode. We went long, but it was necessary. And uh, so we will, next time we'll pick up on two episodes and then we're going to reserve our big finale episode for our final uh, episode on Mando season two, because that's going to require a lot of discussion because that is all of this and more and a bag of chips. I think my co-host, thank you so much, Bracey. My pleasure, sir. Thank you so much, Steve. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, this was a really fun episode to do, and I can't wait to get to the finale and uh, make the force be with you all. And thank you so much, Nemesis. Speaking on behalf of all the other great je Jedis, thank you, and I'll talk to you next week. All right, guys, next time we're going to... And that's it for this episode of... Sloppy spoilers. Sloppy spoilers.